Father, thank you very much for this time. Thank you for the reality that um, all of our bloodstained hands as we come forward are like filthy rags to you, but you cover us. Father God, you cover us completely from head to toe. Lord God, every nook and cranny of us is covered by your grace. For those of us who have placed our faith and trust in you, Lord God, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. Father God, and it's in that truth and in this reality that we live, not to our own, but to you, Father God, that we give you praise and glory and honor this morning, and we submit ourselves to your word today. Prepare hearts to receive, Lord God, what you have for us prepared in your word, Lord God, to challenge us, to provoke us, to faithfully follow out the calling that you have called us to. Father God, and it's a heavy calling, it's a heavy burden, Lord God, but you are sufficient. Father God, whatever burdens we carried in this morning, Lord God, I pray that we would lay them down so that we could hear from you directly, Lord God. And I pray that my words would stand aside, Lord God. They would be gone, removed, whatever. I don't, I don't care about my words. I care about your glory and your honor and your word. Father God, for it is your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce joints and marrow, soul and spirit, to divide the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Father God, to so let that reign supreme in us today as we submit to it. Father, we give you praise, glory, and honor. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may have a seat. Thank you for joining with us today. We're in James. If you want to go ahead and turn there. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. And if you're joining with us today uh, for the first time, uh, we've actually been walking verse by verse through the book of James for a number of weeks now. So I always like to, after we've been in it for a little while, to kind of do a little bit of a recap. First off, who James is talking to, who he is reflecting over. And if we flip back to the beginning of James in James 1, what do we see? We see that James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Uh, and he later says that he is referring to the brothers, and that's interesting in the context because we know about the dispersion of the Jews because that's who he's talking about in that, in that section. But the Jews were exiled way back when, when the Assyrians had taken over and then followed by the Babylonians and then followed by the Romans, uh, that they had been spread out all over the place. Why? Because of their unfaithfulness, because of their sinful behaviors, they had been cast out because they were not faithfully following after the Lord. And it's interesting that James uses that as the context by which he talks about the dispersion because it is the dispersion right here. He's talking about his brothers. So he's talking about Christians. So he's utilizing the sense of the people of God getting spread out all over and recognizing some realities for us for the true Israel to be spread out and cast out all over the place. Why? Because you and I, as followers of Christ, are sojourners right? We have been cast out, right? We're away from our heavenly home. We're awaiting that home. And now we're in a place where we don't belong. You get that, right? As children of God, this is not your home, right? You long for something greater. You long for a greater place to go to. And it's in that context that James is writing to the brothers. So I want you to catch the weightiness of that though. As a sojourner, right? There's, there's some specific things that happen there. It means that you've got a lot of things that are removed. Um, and I believe most of us, uh, if we understood this concept, concept, it's really hard for us to live this out practically. So I'll uh, give you an example. We, um, back in Raleigh, North Carolina, where we came from, we used to work with a ministry that helped refugees when they came stateside uh, to help them settle in. And this was our small group. So by the way, community groups, you can do a lot right, to serve others. 
uh, we were called out to connect with uh, some, a refugee family. And when I say that they came with nothing, I mean, they came with nothing. We had to set up the apartment. We had to get to the mattresses for those and the kids. We had to get the, the sheets. We, had to, we even commandeered, I believe we did Christmas that year because of when they came in uh, for the entire family. And from everything, pots, pans, the whole nine yards. Because when they landed on the plane and when we met them at the gate, they had the, their backpacks on and they had their carry-ons and that was it. They had nothing else. And I think if we as Christians were to reflect over what Christ would have for us live like as a refugee, right? You truly have nothing of your own. The place that you live is not your own. Uh, very rarely do you even know anyone else but your immediate family. You have nothing. James reminds us that we are to view our lives in this type of context, which more fully colors our understanding of this passage today, right? With hopeful optimism as we set our minds on Christ while we also expect the trials to come. Because it's exactly, right? Let's go back to James 1. We count it all joy, my brothers, what? When we meet trials of various kinds. So the main idea this morning is believers are to patiently look for the Lord's return during times of suffering with endurance and integrity. Let's read right here in, in verses one, seven through nine. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So right there, beginning in verse seven and then later in verse eight, what do we see? We see, therefore... So what does therefore mean, church? <laughs> got to look back, right? So we got to look back to last week to understand the context of what James is talking about. And last week we learned that there were some unrighteous unbelievers, right? And sometimes even believers who were rich, but they were oppressing others for the work that they were receiving instead of showing them the respect and honor that was due to them. So those people, those people under oppression, under their thumb were receiving nothing, Right? Everything was unstable for them. Their foundations were unsure. They were not able to provide for their families because of this oppression. So James, rightly so, right, confronts them in their sin. But as we'll see, this is a particular trial that also affects us. So for James, these particular trials are more sinister, right? Because it's different, right, than just, hey, look, lightning struck you know, a limb and it fell down on my car, right? That's the suffering of a kind. But this is suffering that is evil with intent, Right? The means and the mode is to put this person under your thumb and to control them. Yet this should be of no surprise to the believer, should it? For Christ stated it multiple times in the Gospels, right? Beginning in John 15, when he's talking to his disciples, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I've said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And later in the same dialogue, he's talking, he, he says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace, peace in the Lord. Don't we need that? Peace in the Lord. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ clearly informed the disciples and by extension us in no uncertain terms that we are going to walk through many types of direct suffering because we cherished our beloved savior. That's it. And we are to bear the weight of these trials. 
with patience, according to James. And this word, right, is found in verses seven and verses eight. And this patience is very different than say, you know, hey, look, I need to grow in patience with my boys, which I do, right? Because I need to be a better parent, right? And I need to be striving after the Lord. So I need to grow in patience. But that's not what we're talking about. See, here, James is using the context. This patience means that this is under a weight of suffering. This person is even tempered while this weight sits on them. That's how we're to be patient. That's a very different context. And what's our natural response to this? Typically, we want to go where? To become more impatient, right? And what do we do? We pursue the relief of it uh, as soon as possible. Let me get out from underneath this suffering. Yet James seems to clearly see that patience is generated from the truth that Christ will return to make all things right. Do you know an interesting fact? That there are over 300 references to Christ's return in the New Testament alone. About one in every 13 verses. You think that's important? I think so, right? Good, good rule of hermeneutics, right? If it's repeated, it's probably important. Christ's return being the topmost. The scriptures ooze with the return of Christ, but it wasn't just Christ's promise that made those believers ache for the second coming. It was the difficulties of life, right? Difficulty makes us long for the return of Christ. And we know this to be true, right? How many of us quickly said, come Lord Jesus, the moment we found out all of those Israelis that were slaughtered by Hamas, Come, Lord Jesus. How many of you were praying a few years ago, come, Lord Jesus, when Russia invaded Ukraine and all of those innocents that were right there on the boundaries of the country, right, were slaughtered and buried in graves sitting on top of one another as we saw the atrocities of the Russians? Come, Lord Jesus. How many of you are experiencing persecution right now in your own context and you've cried out, come, Lord Jesus? Yeah, And it is patience, right, under trial that reveals the true foundation of a believer in that moment, to be in the reality of the return of Christ. As Christ would describe his own return, he said, as far as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's a surety. And James references the standard weather patterns of the early and late rains as they pertain to the farmer, so too will be the glorious Redeemer's return, right? Just as certain as the seasons, Just as quickly, right, as winter will turn to spring and spring to summer, Christ will return. James also shows us that through another term, how we must endure. And this is the word establish, right there in verse eight. It says, establish your hearts. And this is a a Greek word to strengthen or establish, to confirm. And the idea is like a, a vine that's growing up a trellis and it has that foundation behind it. Or it's like a pitcher of an old man that needs to be propped up, but he needs a cane in order to support him. Or the idea of someone who is firmly grounded on their feet, carrying a weight. It's under weight and under pressure to strengthen. And we get this idea. And even though this is to be the sure reality of the believer, it does not mean that it will not come without great temptations, right? This weight is a weight, after all, to deny all of these realities. That's why we must actually grow in strength. That's why we have to endure. And why would that happen? For Satan would have us deny the immediacy of the Lord's return, right? After all, church, it's been over 2,000 years, right? He's not coming. He's not coming anytime soon. And what does that do in your heart when we think about how long? We have a tendency to want to grow cold and callous, uh, to become despondent under the weight of our suffering, 
And then we're all tempted to lash out at others, uh, even our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what I think he has in mind right here in, in verse nine. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So last week, Taylor spoke about how the rich would be held accountable for their actions, right? And this week, all the Christians are reminded of how we too, we be held accountable by how we respond to said actions. Yeah, we're actually held accountable by that. So I'm gonna use a little bit of a counseling thing. Um, so my counselees in here, sorry, you're just gonna have to deal with it again. But in Jeremiah 17, uh, we have uh, a picture for us. Uh, Jeremiah gives us a picture uh, of the people of Israel, but I think it d- does some notice here that I think will connect some dots for us on how people are to connect with, um, with their persecution. In Jeremiah 17, it says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Right, it does not fear when heat comes. The point is, is that guess what? We all will have heat coming into our lives. We're all going to struggle. We're all going to have a type of suffering, but yet this tree firmly rooted in the Lord does what? Produces fruit, yes, it will produce fruit, period. It can't do anything else. So I'm gonna let you in on a little secret that the world doesn't want you to know. Our circumstances do not determine, right, our responses. Our circumstances do not determine our responses, right? They can influence, they can tempt, but they cannot control us. For that control has been given over to another, hasn't it? To Jesus himself, to guide our lives, And I'm about to step on some toes here, but please hear me. No matter the difficulty that life may bring us, it in no way allows for us to become sinfully angry with others and with God. No way. Period. It's unhelpful, unbiblical. See, the temptation is to grow distracted and begin to infight over trivial matters so we go at one another, right, like a bunch of piranhas as we devour one another. However, this will all fade in the background if we would but just look to our Savior, and his shortcoming, right? All those trivial matters begin to to die away, including our suffering, right? And how does he he talk about this? Why, Why do we do this? Because the judge right, is standing at the door. And the only example I could come up with, because welcome, I'm a, I'm a parent of boys, right? So, uh, and we've got a, you know, a, a loft where we can listen in to all the boys. So we send them upstairs. We're like, hey, go play, go play together up there. And it's not two minutes. And we hear, oh, he punched me in the face. Oh, he shot me with a gun. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is, it's always something every day, uh, without, without a doubt. But and I like to creep up there. See, they don't know this all the time. I like to stalk a little bit. So I'm, I creep up the stairs and I creep down the hallway. And then I peek around the corner just to see how they're doing, right? So that I can respond right there off the bat. But what changes in their demeanor when they know that, hey, daddy's sitting in the door? Oh, here, take the gun, buddy. <laughs> You're such a good big brother. All right, I love you. See how they respond differently when they know that daddy's there just as much as you and I respond with the reality that God's always there. He's always standing in the door. He's always watching. He sees you in your pain. He sees you in your suffering. He knows what you're going through. Now, the question for you and I is how strange this must be to the outside world when 
what they see and what they look at in the church is strife and bitterness when they should see love and compassion, right? See, this is one of the larger black marks, I believe, on the church today. It's our uncharacteristic anger and bitterness towards one another. It makes no sense. Yet if we are to be a people of the Bible, we know how we are to respond to one another. Even during difficult circumstances, we are to love one another. That's Christ's command right there in John 13. A new commandment. What's a commandment, church? Something you must do. You have to do it. You're commanded to do it. It's not an option. I'm just going to choose to love. I'm not going to choose to love him. Nope. Nope. He's got, he's got way too much baggage. No, thanks. I'm not going to love that guy. Or that guy does not fit my personality type. No, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Right, you were filthy, I was filthy. And Christ said, I love you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Praise the Lord. Continuing on, beginning in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So number two, I need you to see that we are to wait on the Lord's return with marked determination. Marked determination. The patience James calls for uh, when not coupled with a hopeful resoluteness, can be lost on the world if we just endure suffering, right? See, we're not called to be doormats for Jesus, right? You're, we're not called to be an Eeyore for Jesus. Oh, woe is me. I've got struggles. I've got a whole bunch of junk going on in my life. I guess I just need to bear it. Jesus told me to. Is that, how is that speaking to a world that's watching in and looking in? No. We are to be a people growing in hope during our trial. Growing. Showing the world that we long for something far greater than anything this world has to offer to us. See, this is how Paul described it to the Romans. He said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Praise the Lord. And what are the biblical examples to help us? He gives us the perfect examples, the prophets and Job. The prophets, man, they, they just they face so much backlash over their message. They were not heeded during their time, and Job was rejected by his own friends, even though he was blameless. Surely he was a sinner, yes, but in the account of why he was suffering, it was not related to his sin. It was related to God's sovereignty. Hear how the writer of Hebrews describes the prophets, though, to set our context right. What does he say? And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. Does that sound like Eeyores for Jesus? Absolutely not. Y'all better wake up. Y'all are second group. Stop the mouse of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Put them to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refused to accept the release so that they may rise again in the better life. They're like, come on, bring it on. Saw me in two. Let's go. I'm going to Jesus. Wow, that's different. 
Others suffering mockings, floggings, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now those are the accounts of the tremendous courage and hope. Don't you want that type of courage to face anything this world can throw at you? Don't you want to experience the type of peace and determination as a way of life? The prophets received very little in the ways of this world except derision for their faith in the Lord. Job received no relief from his family and friends because of his peace. His wife told him to die. Jeez. Ultimately, they could all but care less about what this world could do to them because they looked to their redeemer. Listen to Job, his own testimony. For I know that my redeemer lives. Say, my redeemer lives. There it is. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, why? Because Job knows he's a sinner. He's gonna die. He's gonna go into the dirt. But what does he say? Yet in my flesh, I shall see God. He's gonna rise again. He's gonna see his savior, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. He's still reminding you of his suffering but he knows he's going to see his savior. He knows he's going to experience it. So paradoxically, Job and the rest of the Old Testament reveal to us the necessity of a savior because that's where Job's hope is coming from. Job waits on the Lord with a marked struggle, but the, he never loses his hope. In Job, we see the justice and the mercy, right? Because he's gonna die, but yet he's gonna see the Lord. We understand that, right? And like Job, we too must wait on the final justice of our Lord amidst our trial. And the outside world will mock his final return. Yet we know that God is our standard bearer and the one who will restore everything under his righteous hand and decrees. And this is what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. But catch it. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's not done. He's not done with your oppressors. And to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, final judgment comes from him. And the Lord understands the railings of the scoffers of this world, which is why Peter reminds us. He says, know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. They're gonna make fun. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming back. What are you talking about? This is all trivial. This is all trivial. You're just wasting money, just dumping it down. Nothing's going on here. For they overlook this one fact, that the heavens existed long ago, many before them, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God because he's in control. And that by means of these, the world that then existed, right? Those guys that were looking at Noah going, God's not gonna do anything. What you talking about? You go ahead and you build that boat in the desert. Okay. And then what happened? It was deluged with water and perished. 
but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. There's something coming, right? Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should seek repentance. Why is the Lord slow? He's calling his children to himself. Think about it as we connect the dots to suffering. Think about how many from World War II, right, were crying out, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Let it all end. And if it had ended then, then you and I would still be in our sin. The Lord is patient and kind, seeking out his children, calling them out from generation to generation to come to him. And when that number, which he knows, is ready, Here he comes to get us all, to take us all home. Praise the Lord. So with resolute hearts, let us all wait on the Lord with great determination. Three, beginning verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Finally, we see that wait on the Lord's return with a commitment to truth, a commitment to truth. See, once again, we see that James is like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been to, I think we've went back to the Sermon on the Mount almost every week where we come back. So this is lifted out from Matthew 5, from Jesus' teaching. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform the, the Lord to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. But how does the topic of truthful speech relate to the subject of suffering? One commentator notes that when suffering injustice, one can be tempted to protect oneself through deceptive speech. Perhaps James here mentions oaths to call suffering Christians to both endurance of heart, what we've been talking about, and integrity of speech, when the pressures of life would lead many to despair or to compromise. And this was actually the testimony of many of the early patristic fathers. So early in the church, there was lots of persecution as, the, as, the, as Christians were spreading out amongst Rome. And there were many accounts, not just a few, of those that were recanting of their salvation. They would flee, right, because persecution. And let's be frank, this was legit persecution. We're talking about being burned alive at the stake. We're talking about being devoured by lions in the arena. This is no small matter. But when they left, the other Christians who were staying in the suffering, they had struggles. They were like, are you truly in Christ? Like, we don't know if you're safe because you, you fled And thankfully, some of those accountings are that if they were truly in Christ, they came back, they returned. And then the the testimony even grows further because their suffering, usually when they returned, was far worse. And yet they still held strong. And when I mean that they held strong, I mean that guys and ladies singing at the stake, being burned alive, hymns to the Lord. Don't you want that type of courage? to face whatever this world sends your way. As children of God, we are to remain faithful through our actions and our speech. 
Peter reminds us of this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Perhaps this is the other reason that James connects truth-telling to persecution because most times persecution arises when Christians boldly face the lies of the enemy uh, head on with the foundational truths from his word. And when I was thinking about an example of this, uh, I went to uh, William Wilberforce, who for the vast majority of his life upon coming to Christ, and this is around the mid 1700s following into the 1800s, uh, when he came to Christ, he met a group who were seeking to abolish slavery in Great Britain, Britain and the rest of the empire. And he fought this battle in parliament for 50 years. And finally, after he had already been retired for a number of years, but still fighting the fight, the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 was enacted. And guess what? He died three days later. Fought for close to 50 years for this, under the burden, under the weight, speaking the truth in a culture that was not wanting to hear anything he had to say. But he knew it was right. He knew it was right, so he fought to the end. This is the stock that you and I come from. This is what we are built from. This is what we are born into. See, they are the great cloud of witnesses in every previous generation that is calling us to rise up and face whatever this generation may send our way. We must rise up and tell the darkness that we cannot move any further. We're not crossing this line, sorry, with, which will result in an onslaught, right? And a backlash from our culture and the forces of darkness. And this should give us courage to stand because as the Lord sifts his church, his true children will rise to the surface to boldly lock arms together and to stand firm. Praise the Lord. So what are we to do with this? How are we to take away, apply this to our life? One, we need to learn to suffer well. I'm afraid in our context, we don't understand what it's like to suffer well. To be frank, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it's like to sit with a gun to my head and watch as my children are killed before me because that's what people in Muslim context face almost daily. I don't know what it's like to live in hiding, right, in the underground church movement in China because they got eyes everywhere. And we know this from missionaries that have lived in interior China. They have police officers that will check on your door daily. If you don't come out at the right time, if you don't go in at the right time, something's up. They're coming to knock on your door. Oppression. I don't know what that's like. I need to grow. I need to grow my understanding in the context. See, the context of this passage deals with oppression of the rich, but the application for us today actually spreads out far greater than that. We recognize that. And this does, also doesn't mean that we seek out persecution, guys. We're not to be, you know, just going to be, you know, trying to be martyrs. But we need to be prepared we need to guard up our hearts for this so that when it does come, we're ready to stand whatever comes our way. So here are some helpful areas for you to consider. First is the one that we've already covered, which is suffering well financially. And this has been the primary thrust of the text. So if you're facing financial stress because of your relationship to Christ, count it all joy. Be the fragrant offering Christ desires for you to be and allow those who desire to harm you to see your unfaltering faith knowing that you're being unjustly treated. Call out to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't forget the church and your burdens. Come to the church. Be with your brothers and sisters. Allow us to bear burdens alongside you, right? This could be 
financially. It most certainly is spiritually. It's emotionally. It could be physically, right? Taking care of kiddos when you can't because you got to go work the third job. Okay, I get that. So bear one another's burdens. This is how the Lord broke the Jewish priests. Remember that from the early parts of Acts. I love this testimony. It was through the love of the people of God together that Jewish priests left the priesthood to come to Christ. All because they saw how the early church cared for one another. So don't discount that. Sometimes our suffering comes like sovereign hand of God is allowing suffering so that the people of God rise up and carry one another. And the world looks in and goes, man, I don't, that's crazy. Y'all take care of one another like that? And I can tell you testimony after testimony and testimony of this faithful church that that's happening all over the place. So we see that. And the next two are closely linked. And they're ones, honestly, that are difficult for me to talk about, but suffering well emotionally and suffering well physically. And I, was, I had a hard time working with this and I didn't even necessarily want to bring it up, but I have to. Because persecution and oppression do not always come just at our pockets. After all, Satan is after our complete destruction, so he will strive to affect us by whatever means he can. Outside of finances, many times suffering comes through emotional and physical ways. Listen to the stats of those who have or are suffering through some kind of physical abuse. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. 20 people per minute. We've been at it for an hour. Think about that. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, intimate partner sexual violence, intimate partner stalking with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, post-traumatic stress disorder, use of victim services, contraction of sexual transmitted diseases, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And what's my point? Not just to give you a bunch of stats, but to point you to the reality that in a room this large, some of us have been abused or are currently being abused. And the reality is that most of that abuse bubbles beneath the surface and goes unnoticed for many years, sometimes decades. And what you need to know is that Christ hears you and he sees you. And while you look to this coming return, his coming return with great anticipation because of your suffering, let me encourage you again, please seek help. Seek help within the church. Let me be clear and resolute here. Physical and emotional abuse are an affront to God. It stinks. And he will deal justly with those who seek to control others in this way. If you are an abuser trying to remain hidden in our midst, know that the Lord knows who you are. And he is calling you today to repent or you will face the wrath and retribution justly due your sin. For the abused, I want you to know that the church has not been a safe place. And because of that, many have been hurt because of inaction, because of a failure to respond. But I can promise you this, that's not the case at Cross. We are by no means a perfect church. We're not, we're gonna fail. But we are eagerly seeking after the Lord with a desire to help those who are suffering and who are trying to come out of these broken situations. So again, my pleading to you today, if this is you, seek help. Seek help if this is where you are. And finally, we need to honor truth in a culture built around lies and deception. 
So many of the cultural struggles we face today are here because the church is in America has refused to walk boldly when faced with situations that are blatantly sinful and against the will of God. Christians have always been the called out ones. We're not to look like the world. We're not to be like the world. Called out to walk differently. Called out to showcase the love of Christ. Called out to speak the truth in love, right? We should not be ashamed of the Lord and we are to then, we're to look to greater things and not worry about these things. Lies must be confronted with the truth. And as we come to the end of this year and the Lord prepares our heart for Seek Week and as we're looking towards what he's looking to do in our lives, right? As we're walking through the numerous burdens, we need to recognize some things that in order for revival to break out, as we're praying for, right? Right here in Buford, for revival to break out, it must first begin with the household of God. So I'm gonna ask for you to go ahead and close your eyes. And I'm gonna read a quote from you from Leonard Ravenhill. We've been talking about why revival tarries. So I think it's just helpful to kind of redirect our steps and how we apply this. But I want you to think about this. And as it pertains to you, and what the Lord's calling you to do in order to experience change in your own life so that revival can break out first in you and then in those that are around you. So hear these words. He says that, oh, that believers would become eternity conscious. If we could live every moment of every day under the eye of God, if we did every act in the light of the judgment seat, if we sold every article in the light of the judgment seat, if we prayed every prayer in the light of the judgment seat, if we tithed all our possessions in the light of the judgment seat, if we preachers prepared every sermon with one eye on damned humanity and the other on the judgment seat, then we would have a Holy Ghost revival that would shake this earth and that in no time at all would liberate millions of precious souls. Come Lord Jesus. Father, our hearts, Lord God, were wrecked by the realities of the suffering of this world that we have seen and that we too experience. Father God, but our suffering does not diminish the reality of your return. The reality that you've called us out to follow in you faithfully. Lord God, so we remember you in this time in our brokenness. We remember you in the time where we recognize that we've failed, where we've caved. We've been like those men that, that faced, you know, faced the suffering and said, no, 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 I recant. We've, we've kept our mouths shut just because we wanted to protect something. We wanted to keep a job. We wanted to keep all of these things just because we, we, we don't want to share our faith. We didn't want to be bold for you. Father God, and in that, Lord God, we are guilty. Father, would you forgive us? Would you work in us anew? Lord, your word tells us to put in us, you put in us a clean heart, a heart that is able to worship you as you deserve. We recognize that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ lives within us. The life we now live by faith, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us. Our life is not our own. Father God, we give this time to you, Lord God, as we continue to worship you, Lord God, as we remember your sacrifice. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.